Well, hello to all in Facebook land. It's a Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. Central Time, and that means that Bill is doing our Facebook Bible study based on the daily Bible reading edited by F. Lagarde Smith called The Daily Bible in Chronological Order. Yes, as you know, we were celebrating our 45th wedding anniversary over the last week or so, and so we were gone to the beautiful beach at Galveston in a beautiful hotel, the Hotel Galvez, although there was construction going on, but, you know, some things happened. And, um, but it was a great, great week, and the beach was beautiful. It was perfect time to be there, and uh, we just had a really great time. Thanks to so many of you who uh, put wishes on Facebook for my birthday, uh, turning 65 on May the 2nd, and our anniversary, 45 years on May the 7th. I got to see a great show of Billy Joel and uh, Elton John music um, uh, starring Michael Cavanaugh. If you ever have a chance to go see him, he is wonderful. That is a spectacular show. We loved it. Did a few other things while we were there. Mostly just took it easy. And that was a, that was a, nice, a nice thing. Nice getaway. And so we didn't have a class on Tuesday. So we're uh, a little bit behind, but that's okay. We're going to catch up just a little bit. I'm going to share a few psalms today, and then we'll talk a little bit about King Solomon and his coming to power after the death of his father, King David, and, um, and see where that leads us. And that will be plenty of us to get us uh, through the week, and hopefully you're continuing to stay up with your reading. Remember, read today's reading first. Everyone gets behind sometimes, but if you do, read today's reading first, and then when you have time, go back and catch up. And that way you won't get further behind. So um, at any rate, I do want to share a few psalms. We are looking at psalms of encouragement, looking at psalms of comfort. Uh, we'll be looking at some psalms of the Messiah today. And then we'll get into 1 Kings chapter 3 and tell a couple of familiar stories about um, King Solomon at the beginning of his reign. So the first one is Psalm 42. You've heard the songs, as the deer thirsts for the water, Lord, and as the deer pants for the water. Both uh, fairly new songs, contemporary Christian songs that have been that have come out uh, over the last few decades. Now, I'm not sure some would consider uh, the first, the uh, older one, contemporary anymore, but I think we can call it that. But anyway, they're taken from this wonderful psalm in Psalm 42. It's one of those psalms that. The psalmist cries out for help from the Lord and acknowledges and expresses, confesses really, his uh, thirst and hunger uh, for the Lord. So, Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? Here was the psalmist who had expressed his faith. Everyone knew that he was a believer, that he trusted in God. And now they're seeing his life uh, not in a good place. And asking him, where is your God? This God that you trusted in. Um, kind of the same kind of things that Jesus heard when he was on the cross. Um, verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I love that part in that newer song. I uh, pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. He remembered getting to go to church. He remembered getting to be with fellow believers and uh, remembered better times than the suffering he was enduring right now. 
And then a, a refrain that's repeated a couple times in this psalm, in verse 5 of Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. One of the great things about these psalms, and we'll look at a couple of them today, that uh, talk about raising questions to God, asking him very honestly, very genuinely, uh, why he isn't acting to bring deliverance. And, and yet, it seems that every time they also acknowledge that their faith is firmly planted in the Lord and they're not giving up. Such a great, great statement. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan. The heights of Hermon from Mount Miser. Verse 7, deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Deep calls to deep. Don't you love that statement? Deep calls to deep. When we're in deep, dark, difficult times, that's when our faith has to go deep as well. Uh, deep calls to deep. What a great statement in Psalm 42, verse 7. Verse 8, by day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, again, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Sometimes when I read uh, psalms like this, chapters like this, these last couple of verses, I, I wonder if the psalmist is just trying to convince himself, trying to remind himself, hey, this is what I believe. Put your faith in God. He'll see us through this uh, in his own way, in his own time, but he'll see us through. A great, great psalm, Psalm 42. Um, now let's turn to Psalm 130. Uh, psalm 130. And uh, again, some more encouragement in the face of difficulty, uh, but a great psalm that speaks to us about uh, what we're going through today, a short psalm, but the psalmist, like in Psalm 2, uh, um, crying out uh, to God and saying, and in Psalm 22 and so many others, crying out to God, Psalm 42, as we just read, um, out of the depths, and that's how this psalm starts. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. What a great, great statement. Psalm 130, verse 5, verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. That redemption and deliverance apparently hadn't come yet. And so the psalmist would say, My soul waits for the Lord as watchmen wait for the morning. And we think about the watchmen who are on that last midnight graveyard shift, we might say. They're at the gates watching to make sure the enemy doesn't come in in a surprise attack. And just waiting, longing for those first rays of sunshine, of dawn to come up over the horizon. That's how the psalmist said, he waits for the Lord. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. 
What a great, great faith we see in Psalm 130. Well, there's another psalm that is, um, I think, familiar, especially the first verse. It's one that I love to preach about because it is a psalm that Jesus remembers from the cross. And it's Psalm 22. Psalm 22. This is in the section of the Messianic Psalms. Some of them the royal psalms, like the next one we'll look at in Psalm 2. But in this one, we find in Matthew and Mark this great statement from Jesus as he's on the cross and feeling what the psalmist felt. And I believe that as Jesus mouths these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he's not just feeling forsaken and crying out to the Father, although I believe he's doing that. But he's also remembering this psalm because it is a psalm that is filled filled with prophetic statements about what Jesus would go through. And as he remembers this psalm from the cross, it's things that he has already gone through just in the last hours. So this incredible psalm, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. The psalmist remembers, looks back and remembers how God has always delivered his people. Verse 6, and then he goes back to where he is right now and how he's feeling. And the difficult mental and physical, uh, emotional uh, weakness that he is going through. Verse 6 of Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Something that the enemies of Jesus exactly said when he was on the cross. Just as Jesus remembers Psalm 22 verse 1, the psalmist also looks ahead to the time when his critics would, in a very foreshadowing way, uh, be looking ahead to the time when Jesus himself was on the cross. Verse 9, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Again, like Psalm 139 that we looked at last week, it's a great statement that that reminds us that God is the creator of all humanity and he is the creator of uh, the child in the womb. And yes, that is a child created in the image of God, still developing, of course, absolutely, unable to function on its own outside of the mother's uh, body. That's true, but still a very different body itself. I saw something today that said if that uh, fetus is a part of the mother's body, then the mother for a while has 20 toes and 20 fingers. The psalmist acknowledged that even from the womb, God had been his God. Verse 11, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. You felt that way, haven't you? I know I have, and yet God is still there. Verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. That's how he was feeling. That's how you and I have felt at times when we have been under attack, either from others, perhaps even from people we trusted uh, and, and believed in, 
or perhaps uh, from other means such as physical illness or difficulty. Verse 13, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. And then note verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is shied up like is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. Verse 16, in the middle, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So many statements in those last few verses that are fulfilled with Jesus on the cross. The psalmist, I believe, was going through similar things, but not anything like what the Savior would do. And the Savior was doing it without any sin in his life ever, but he did it because of his love for us. The psalmist, I think, is describing conditions of, of thirst, starvation, um, uh, dehydration, and, of course, the emotional uh, difficulty of those around him uh, trying to humiliate him and, and making fun of him. And we know the Savior experienced all of those things. Um, verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. <coughs> Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. Another passage that the writer of Hebrews looks back on. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Just like with Jesus on the cross, ending his, seeing his life ended, but ended in a moment of great, great faith. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. The psalmist, even though he was going through such a difficult, difficult time, still had his faith established firmly in the Lord. Verse 25. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. It could be that the psalmist had said, God, if you'll deliver me, I will, I will reach out to those who need help and I'll do everything in my power to help. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship all who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. And of course, we wonder if the psalmist felt like and, and realized that could very well be his fate as well. Remember Jesus in the garden prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I will, but may your will be done. And we know that God answered uh, Jesus' prayer with a no. And it's possible the psalmist heard that same answer and was not delivered until after his death. But he knows, one way or the other, God will deliver. What a great, great faith. Verse 30, Posterity will serve him, 
Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. What an inspiring, honest, uh, heart-rending psalm of faith. Psalm 22. We'll look at one more psalm today, and it's the second psalm, Psalm 2. It's what we call a royal psalm, very likely written when the new king would uh, be uh, uh, given his power and would be anointed and there would be a celebration and we'll hear about that happening with King Solomon in just a few minutes. And it's very likely that this psalm was read during those times. Psalm, the, uh, the writer in the book of Acts in Acts 4 establishes that this psalm is a psalm of David. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The king was anointed. That, that is the statement, the phrase, where we get the term Christ in the Greek or Messiah in the Hebrew, the anointed one. It was referring to the king in most places. But as we know, Jesus took that, um, that moniker upon himself and uh, realizing that he is the anointed savior. Um, verse 3, Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. As we look at this, we understand that uh, there's a lot of trouble in the world today. And some of it involves leaders of countries. Some of it involves uh, war. Some of it involves poverty. Uh, some of it involves illness. And, um, and yet... This psalm helps us to remember that God is still on his throne and that as we take these burdens to the Lord, he will act. But ultimately, uh, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them because these things are so little. They're big, huge to us. And so God hears and answers and delivers. But for the God of the universe who has been around since before the creation of the world, it's a little drop in the bucket compared to the power of our God. Verse 7, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Like Psalm 110, a statement that is applied to Jesus Christ uh, as Jesus is the son of God. Uh, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's telling people to be submissive to the king, the anointed one. And of course, we see that in an even greater way in the life of Jesus Christ, calling on everyone to submit to the one true and living Son of God. Well, I wasn't going to cover this one, but since we just mentioned it, let's look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is another one of those that we read in the New Testament applied to Jesus, the Savior. Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. Verse 4, The Lord has sworn and you and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Looking back from Genesis and the story of this mysterious man, Melchizedek, greets Abraham after he is returning home from a successful battle. And the writer of Hebrews makes such a strong point about that story and, and looks back to this verse and reminds us that Jesus is the great high priest unlike any other. And he's not from the order of Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, which was the Levitical priesthood of the Jews, but rather is in the order of Melchizedek, who received Abraham's uh, sacrifices from his battle, from the spoils of war, who also blessed Abraham. And so we see that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What a great, great statement. Wonderful, comforting words that remind us of the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, a few thoughts briefly about the beginning of the reign of King Solomon. When David is at the end of, the, of his life, he, he, just, he just can't warm up. And they get a woman, a young woman uh, named Abishag, who comes in and uh, helps to take care of the king, even lying with him and keeping him warm, but gives no sexual uh, advances or relations at all. And uh, the king is uh, helped at the end of his life. And that's a significant thing because there's another man, uh, Adonijah, who is also a son of King David, but not a, not a son of Bathsheba like Solomon is. And um, he wants to be king. And so he calls on his friends and gets together with his supporters and his allies and has his friends anoint him as king and say, Long live King Adonijah. And, um, and the prophet Nathan goes to Bathsheba and they together, uh, at just barely different times, go before King David and say, what's, what's going on? I, I thought you had said that Solomon would reign in your place. And David is completely unaware that that was going on. And so he instructs Bathsheba and Nathan to get Solomon to bring in the high priest and to have him anointed as king and to give him the, uh, the, the mount of King David, his robe, everything, put him on his throne. And Adonijah realizes that he's done. And so he is no longer going to have the hope of being king. And King Solomon is beginning his reign. Well, then David ultimately dies. And Adonijah hasn't given up yet. And so he goes uh, to, actually King David, and he goes to, Ad to Bathsheba and asks her to talk to her son, King Solomon, about uh, letting him marry Abishag, that young woman that was with the king, David, at the end of his life. Well, Bathsheba tells Solomon, and Solomon sees right through it, being wise, and he says, I know that, Abish that Adonijah still wants to take over the kingdom, and so he has him killed. He also has Joab, who had been David's commander of the army, killed, because Joab had shed innocent blood. Two other commanders of David's army, uh, Joab had killed, and though uh, he had been loyal to King David at times, 
uh, he was still guilty. And so Solomon had him put to death. And, and King David had told him about that. And he said, I want you to do whatever you think is right after I'm gone uh, with Joab. And there was one other man, Shammai, this man who made fun of King David when he was leaving. Remember when his son uh, Absalom was trying to take over the kingdom, actually did for a while. And King David and his allies had to leave uh, Jerusalem. And uh, Shammai was one of the ones that were throwing rocks at them, were making fun of them and humiliating them. And then, of course, King David came back to power. And Shammai asked for uh, King David to spare his life. And, and David did. And, uh, and so he had him uh, stay in a certain area there in Jerusalem. King Solomon did. But when he left, then his, his, uh, he was no longer under the protection of the king. And ultimately, Shammai is killed as well. And so Solomon begins his reign by taking care of his enemies and uh, uh, dealing with those who could possibly uh, form an alliance and a conspiracy and take away his throne. And Solomon gets great, great wisdom. And in the first three chapters of the book of 1 Kings, we read about that. David gives a great charge to his son Solomon before his death in chapter 2. And uh, we read about these other things that uh, have gone on uh, with Solomon. And then in chapter 3, these great stories um, we'll share briefly before we close. Uh, first of all, God comes to King Solomon and he says, Ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And King Solomon, in an act of great humility, says, You know, I am, I am little compared to this people. I am not up to the task. I pray that you would give your servant a discerning heart. First Kings chapter 3 says. And God says, because you have acted wisely and humbly, because you have asked for wisdom and not asked for riches and power and glory, I'm going to give it all to you. I'm going to give you that wisdom, but I'm going to give you everything else that comes along with it. And as we know, there was no one in King Solomon's lifetime, very few ever since, that had the power and the wealth and the glory that King Solomon had. He was known worldwide. And there's one story in 1 Kings chapter 3 that is uh, a story that a lot of people know about, even if they don't know that it was about King Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, there are two prostitutes who both get pregnant, and they both deliver their babies about the same time, sons. Well, one of them has a son, and she, her son dies during the night. But the other prostitute is still sleeping with her son, and she hasn't woken up yet. And so the first prostitute whose son had died switches out the babies. You thought that was something new. It's not. She switches out the babies, and when the other woman wakes up, she realizes, oh no, my son is dead. And then she looks a little more closely, and she realizes, wait, this isn't my son at all. That's my son. And the, the other woman denies it and says, no, no, this is my son. That's your son. He died. And so they take it to King Solomon. And King Solomon hears the case. And he says, well, this woman says her son is alive. The other woman says it's her son that's alive. So what to do? What to do? And so King Solomon asks for a sword to be brought. And he says, okay, take this sword and cut the baby in half. Give half of it to the first lady and half of it to the other. Well, when he does that, the mother, who is the real mother of the son who is still alive, reacts and goes to King Solomon and says, no, 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 she's right, she's right, I'm sorry, I was wrong, it's, it's her son, it's her son, please don't harm the child. And the other woman had said, 
Fine, do what you want. Well, King Solomon in his wisdom knows exactly the truth now. And he says, this woman, the woman who is willing to give her son away rather than to see him killed, that's her son. She is the son. She is the mother of the son who is still alive. And so he restores her son to her. We're going to be reading about King Solomon in the days ahead. And of course, the main thing about King Solomon is the, the ultimate building of the temple, this fabulous, incredible temple. Using David's plans, using David's fundraising, all of those things. But it's during the reign of King Solomon that we see that grand temple being built in Jerusalem. I pray that you have a good weekend, and I pray that the Lord will bless you. I'll see you on Tuesday.